0: The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and visual teachings, visit mountainpark.org. Awesome! Once again, Happy Mother's Day, everybody. So glad that you're here. My name is Alan, and Uh, Thanks to family members who have made your mom happy by going to church on Mother's Day. It's a good way to start your Mother's Day. It's points made already. So, so thankful for that. Our theme this year, as it says up on the screen, what we've been talking about since January this whole year, is this idea of something new. And so we'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge and celebrate the newest mom in the room, we even have a prize for you. So if you have uh, become a mom, even if it's your second, third what time or whatever, if you have become a mom within the last 12 months, would you stand again, please? Is anybody within the last 12 months? Any newer moms? We got a pointer over there, there we go, all right. Outstanding, one, two, three. Anybody uh, in 2017? Become a mom. Or got a mom. Okay. Now, okay. What about since uh, February 1st, 2017? We got, we got, I see three standing. Four. Great, great. Since February 1st, you're still standing. Since, since March 1st. Okay. We lost one. All right. We lost two. We lost, you look, I see only one up. Are you the winner? Is there anybody else? Can you see anybody else? Yeah. All right. I got a prize for you. Oh, I know you. I didn't see you from the back. (laughs) Congratulations, Nikki. Happy Mother's Day. There you go. It's a a parenting book called Love and Logic, and uh, my wife and I wish we had that when, uh, when our kids were little, because then we just read it later on and realized all the mistakes we made. So, so you got it on the front end. That's awesome. Uh, also, the, the husband of the mom from the first service was very clear in saying how disappointed they were that it was a book. Uh, so sorry, it wasn't a gift card or whatever, but God bless you nonetheless. So anyway, anyway, we are who we are, right? Uh Hey, um, uh, would you uh, bow your heads with me? I want to pray with you one more time and just pray for our moms and pray for our time here together. Father, we are so thankful uh, for moms. We, we acknowledge that. We just, take, we just take Hallmark's idea of just taking a day of celebrating moms and so thankful that we get to do that here in the church, God. I pray for, um, uh, pray for any moms who perhaps don't get what they hope for or want from their kids today or uh, uh, husbands or families in whatever way, God, I pray that you would bless them in a tremendous way by being here in this place, God, that, 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 uh, that their hopes and desires for today would, would in some way be met by your presence here in this room. God, we bless mothers, lift them up. We are thankful today in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Outstanding. So... Uh, What I want to do today as we celebrate Mother's Day is I want to, uh, I'm actually going to talk about, I'm going to use Mother's Day for the topic today, but I want to broaden the subject. I want to talk about all women, all women. I know that uh, we don't have student ministry uh, this morning, so we have young women here in the room. Uh, We have moms, not moms, not yet moms. We want to celebrate and talk about all women uh, here in this place. As I said earlier, our our theme this year is something new. And so what we've been doing is looking at the whole story of God, the overall story of God from the very creation to the glimpses we have of the end. And and we're looking at how God has invited us to think new things and to become new people and to have new experiences throughout the whole story. Uh, Last week, uh, we celebrated... 33 baptisms uh, here uh, as a part of our celebration. It was awesome. It was a fantastic uh, celebration. Yeah, it's awesome. That's what it's all about. And so we celebrated that, and how that was connected was it's just so clear in Scripture that, that the symbol of coming up out of the water is this beautiful symbol of experiencing new life, that those those who are followers of Christ uh, are invited uh, Paul says that we are a new creation, and so there's a lot of uh, new ideas and concepts that flow out of Scripture. Last week in our celebration of baptisms, that was the the finish of our our looking at the New Testament part of the story. Today, what we're doing is we're transitioning into the next section of the story that I like to call the church. It's the 2,000-year period between the end of the New Testament story and where we are today. We can't just jump from the, book, uh, from the last books of the New Testament to where we are today. There's a lot of things that have happened throughout these, these 2,000 years, good things and bad things that have shaped us that we need to understand. So what we're going to do today and in the next few weeks is look at a few significant new things that were part of God's story throughout the story of the church. And today, in celebration of Mother's Day, I want to jump quite a bit. I want to jump to the year 1920. So it's within the 2,000 years, but it wasn't that long ago. Jump to 1920 when a new amendment was added to the Constitution of the United States. And it's part of the story, I I believe is part of God's story in terms of how we are learning to uh, appreciate one another and interact with, with one another. In the early 1800s, Women in the, in the United States had a very clear uh, role that they were to play submissive uh, roles to their husbands, and they were to be at home and take care of the kids and take care of the family. But as the 1800s were rolling along, there were uh, uh, dramatic changes that were happening in the role of women. Women were becoming leaders in organizations, and, and the United States was redefining the role of women in, uh, in her history. But all of that got set aside, all of that that journey, that growth and development got postponed in the middle of the 1800s with the American Civil War. In the 1860s, all the attention then was turned towards uh, the North and the South and how the, all this was happening and the women had to go and support the men who were fighting. And then the Civil War, of course, led to the to the wonderful Emancipation Proclamation and the freedom of, of slaves in the United States as part of, of, of her history, which led then to the 15th Amendment to the Constitution that said it was illegal for the government to deny voting rights to citizens of the United States. That was the 15th Constitution that flowed out of the civil rights uh, uh, journey there in the middle of the 1800s. Ironically enough, though, that 15th Constitution did not include women. So it It, said it's illegal to deny voting rights to citizens, but still did not allow voting rights for women. That didn't happen for another 50 years, 1920, when there was the 19th Amendment that was signed off by the president, and it had to be ratified by two-thirds. I know you're thinking, what is this, church or social studies class? I know, just stay with me, stay with me. But it was in uh, it was uh, in 1919 when it was initiated, and then uh, uh, and then it was sent off. It needed a two-thirds majority of the states to ratify the 19th Amendment, and it all came down in, two, in 1920 to one state, the state of Tennessee. It all came down. Tennessee was the state to determine whether this amendment was going to go, was going to pass or not. And Tennessee, this was a problem because it was a southern state, and it was the southern states that wanted, to, that were against the women's suffrage movement. It was the southern states that did not want uh, uh, women to have the opportunity to vote. In the state of Tennessee, the vote actually came down to 48-48. It was totally balanced out, balanced out, and it all came down to a 23-year-old Republican named Harry Byrne, who had the deciding vote in Tennessee, which was the deciding state of the 19th Amendment. And he was against women's suffrage. He was against women having the right to vote. Some of you might know this story. He got a letter from his mom. (laughs) Look it up, it's a true story. He got a letter from his mom who said, be a good boy. Be a good boy and sign off on this. And he did. And that's how Tennessee was the turning point, And that's where the 19th Amendment was ratified. Boom. That's an awesome story. That's an amazing story. We can celebrate that. But as we all know, almost a hundred years ago, th- th- things haven't, things haven't, Totally cleaned up. They haven't been totally fixed. In fact, um, uh, there was one state, Mississippi, that still hadn't ratified the 19th Amendment until 1984. 60 years later, 1984. That's Van Halen jump. <laughs> I mean, that's not that long ago. And so, so, and then, of course, there's still so many women's rights issues going on, and it's still, it's still you know, an issue in our country for sure. Let me just kind of pull from uh, American history a little bit and, and just, and what do, I'm a Canadian. What do I know? I'm just, you know, whatever. I'm just trying to learn with you all. But, but let me, let me, let's go together then back into the Word of God. And how, how did God set this thing up for men and women to, uh, for the roles of men and women and how we are to interact with one another? I want to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, the very beginning, the creation story. And in there, there's a very controversial verse. The Lord God said, "It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him." And this is where the role definitions kicked in, and this is where a lot of the confusion of role, of gender role definitions kicked in as well, because the word helper has been understood by so many to be. Uh, inferior or subservient, which is not what it means. The the Hebrew word is ezer, E-Z-E-R, and the word means partner. That elsewhere in scripture, God is even referred to as ezer, and God is never an inferior to anyone. And so that God would partner with us in terms of, of how life goes on. That this helper, this partner, the man and the woman are to be partners in this journey. And later on, as God set the foundation of the law through the Ten Commandments, the foundation of of the law for this new nation and has influenced uh, uh, the world since then, in the Ten Commandments, it says, honor your father and mother. It just very clearly says that both are so key and critical to this journey, And then we walk through the Old Testament journey and we see significant players like Deborah and Esther and Ruth. And in the Old Testament story, God had elevated and celebrated the importance of the role of women in this journey. As the nation of Israel started to decline halfway through the Old Testament story, after Solomon and and the division of the kingdom and the nation of Israel started to struggle towards this, this story that we call the exile, So did the view of women and the role of women in Jewish culture and in the neighboring cultures. By the time Jesus came around, women were viewed as inferior in all the prominent cultures involved in the story of Jesus. That the Greeks uh, viewed women as the source of all evil. That the Romans who were in charge of uh, uh, Judea and that part of the world that Roman husbands, by law, had ownership over their wives and all of their wives' possessions. Even in Jewish culture, it was, it was uh, so dominated by men, and it was, it was seen as a sin to talk to a woman publicly. And so there was just such a, a tremendous division in, in this whole journey Women were viewed as inferior. They were intellectually inferior, spiritually inferior, emotionally inferior, and then comes Jesus. Jesus enters the picture, and the point I want to make today that I just can't miss, he changed everything. The story of Jesus changed everything. I mean, think about how the New Testament starts. Who's the first main player in the New Testament story? Mary, Mary, or, or really Elizabeth, you know, depending on which book you're looking at, that, that Elizabeth, the relative of Mary, gives birth to John the Baptist, who's the predecessor of Jesus. And at the same time, Elizabeth and Mary are both pregnant, and Mary gives birth to Jesus. The whole story starts with two young moms. And then Jesus gets, grows up, and he has this um, important relationship with these two sisters, Mary and Martha, And at one point in their interaction, Jesus is coming to visit them, and Martha is frustrated because Mary goes out and sits at the feet of Jesus the rabbi and listens to him and learns from him. And Martha is upset, saying, I'm the one doing all the work. I'm doing all the preparation. And in that culture, she was doing the appropriate thing, that women did the preparing, and the men sat at the feet of the rabbi and learned that rabbis didn't teach women, rabbis taught men. That was the culture. And Jesus says, Martha, Mary's doing a great thing. Martha, I, I'm, I mean, Jesus breaks the mold in terms of how women are to be treated. That yes, I want Mary in front of me right here and I will pour into her. And it was a, a, a beautiful and powerful moment right there. And then, and then look at the climax of the whole New Testament story, the resurrection of Jesus. The group of people who went and discovered an empty tomb was a group of women. And by human standards, if you were going to tell this story, you would not have a group of women be the ones to discover the empty tomb. Because in that culture, the testimony of a woman was worthless unless it was substantiated by a man. So this whole story says, just the whole story of it is that, no, it's the testimony of these women. Women, you go tell the men what you saw. I mean, Jesus changed everything. There's a a writer, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, a friend of C.S. Lewis named Dorothy Sayers, and she she writes this in kind of summary of, of Jesus. Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle, And last at the cross, they had never known a man like this man, a prophet and teacher who never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words of Jesus that there was anything funny about woman's nature. Jesus changed everything. Now, it could be that some some of you men here, that there was a time in your life when you thought that you were the best thing that ever happened to women. There could be a time, and probably not now, and maybe you never said it out loud. Maybe that wasn't a verbal thing, but it was just between you and the mirror, that was the observation that you made. (laughs) Maybe some young men here in the room who are going, that's kind of the direction you're headed or whatever. Let me just tell you with no uncertainty, with no hesitation, Jesus was the best thing that ever happened to women. Do you understand that? Jesus was the best thing that ever happened to women. Yes, it's true. We get into the rest of the New Testament and Paul's writings stir up a lot of conversation and controversy in terms of the role of women. But but make no mistake, Paul says that that in Christ there is no slave or free, there's no male or female. Paul says, says um, husbands and wives submit to one another, and there's a lot that we could talk about there in the New Testament, but make no mistake that Jesus came and set a standard for the treatment of women that the world had never seen. Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to women, let me, let me just dig down into one story, go into a, a little bit of the details in one of the stories of an interaction that Jesus had with a woman. This story is found in John chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. I invite you to turn there with me. John chapter 4. I do encourage you to, to go there with me just to make sure I'm not making this up, all right? Just making sure we're looking at, at what Scripture has to say at these, in these stories. John chapter 4. It's the story of an interaction Jesus has with a Samaritan woman at the well. What's happening here is Jesus and his disciples, they are making a journey from Jerusalem, which is south. They're making a journey north to Galilee, which is where they were from. It's where they all grew up and where they met and where they fished and all that. They were making a journey back to Galilee. And the shortest way to make that journey would be to go through Samaria. It's right in between Jerusalem and Galilee. They would have passed through Samaria. And the story says that Jesus was tired, which I love. He's tired because he's human. He's human. He was tired on this journey, and so he stopped to to rest at the well. And here we jump in, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And it's possible for us to to skip over that, to skip over that comment in parentheses and, and misunderstand how significant this encounter was. First of all, Jesus was talking to a woman. And as I said, in Jewish culture, that's just, that's just not what you would do. A rabbi in particular would not talk to a woman in public like that. No way. And then secondly, there's no way that, he would, that a Jew would talk to a Samaritan woman. And you need to understand the history of this just a little bit that, as I said, Samaria is north of Jerusalem. And deeper into, into the Jewish history the Assyrians came and they started taking, taking over the Jewish towns, the Jewish areas from the north. And in Samaria, they just folded. They just submitted to any superpower that came in and said, yeah, whatever, you can have whatever you want. You can take whatever you want. They didn't fight. They, did, they had no courage. They were cowards in the, in the eyes of the, of the Jews who fought for their freedom. And so they would intermarry and just let people live in and move, yeah, whatever you want, we'll just take whatever you want, we'll give you whatever, whatever you want. They were viewed as, once, the, once that all settled down and there was peace basically in that land, they were viewed as mongrel Jews, that they did not hold strong, they were cowards and they were, they were just disgusting from the view of, of the Jews. And this shows up in the Good Samaritan story as well as in this story here, this, the, the racial tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. We have to understand the, the, the significance of this moment of a Jewish rabbi having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. We just have to embrace how uh, unique and amazing this was. I, I saw the movie Boss Baby with my daughter a week and a half ago. Anybody see that? Boss Baby. Yeah, it's a surprisingly good movie. I, was, I enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. Uh, if you haven't heard, I won't ruin it for you. Um, but it's the story of, a, of, a, of an only child, a boy who gets the terrible news that he's getting a little brother, and then discovers that his little brother, as a baby, sounds a lot like Alec Baldwin. and. <laughs> and then learns that this baby uh, not only talks, but holds meetings with other babies, and, and there's, there's this whole conspiracy thing happening underneath, and part of the story is discovering what that conspiracy is. It's somewhat entertaining. I, 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 I've never been a mom, but I would guess that, uh, that maybe one of your worst nightmares would be that you give birth to, to Alec Baldwin, uh, right there. I mean, I'm just, I just, if you're pregnant, I don't know, I don't want to you know, feed something into you that's not good, but just imagine that story here. So here's a story where this baby comes out. Imagine 1,000 years from now. This will be a little bit of a stretch. Imagine 1,000 years from now, and because of advances in technology and science, that a baby could come out with full language skills. Imagine that that's just normal. That's, they get a jump on education so that a baby comes out and just says, Oh, that's such a headache. Uh, you know, a baby just comes out and says, can somebody help me clean up here a little bit? You know, whatever the thing is, that a baby just comes out with full speaking skills. Then a thousand years from now, this whole story of boss baby would be, well, what's so funny about that? I mean, what's so interesting about that? That's just the way it happens. That's just normal. You see, when we look at a story like this in Luke, in, in, uh, in John chapter four, the modern brain needs to understand that we look at this encounter and we go, well, what's the big deal? So a man is talking to a woman by a well and what's the big deal? But we need to understand that that this was a radical move by Jesus. This was a radical encounter for a Jewish man to have this encounter with a Samaritan woman who is inferior on multiple levels according to the culture. she responds intellectually strong. She responds, she holds her head up and just says, Sir, what you're saying doesn't make sense for these reasons. And she she engages with him despite the awkwardness and the uniqueness of the encounter. And it continues, verse 13, Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. This woman was not only intellectually strong, she was spiritually strong. Here she is saying, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. But if there's something that God is doing, if this is consistent with the story of God, if there's something that I can have access to here, if there's some freedom that I can experience because of this encounter, because of you, because of this living water you're talking about, then I want it. There was spiritual strength in saying, yeah, I'm not not too familiar with this, but if it's real, I want it. I want to drink it. I want to taste it. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. And then she goes on to talk about worship. And goes on to talk about one day there'll be a Messiah who comes and explains this all to us. And she has this, in, this incredible encounter with Jesus. And this encounter was emotionally strong for her. She she did not cower or hide when this prophet had mentioned her past and just run away and, and hide from it. She she stood up straight with him and said, You must be a prophet. You, you know that my life has not gone the way I wanted it to go. And she stood with emotional strength in front of him. I summarized earlier that that culture viewed women as inferior. They were intellectually inferior. They were spiritually inferior, emotionally inferior. And Jesus says in this story, says, absolutely not. Look at this woman that you all view as inferior. Look at how she has responded to me. This story is captured for eternity for us to look at. Look at how she has responded. Look at who she is. Look at, at the engagement this woman has with me here in this story. There's something beautiful and powerful that happens here. I encourage you, if you don't know the rest of the story, jump in John chapter 4 and see what happens after that. This, this inferior Samaritan woman goes, and she becomes the testimony to a large group of people in terms of who Jesus is in this area called Samaria. Samaria. Just, a, just a, a radical transformation. And Jesus says she is not inferior. Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to this Samaritan woman. Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to this Samaritan woman. So, so what happened? If that's the way God set it up and that's the way Jesus modeled for us and, 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 and reinforced this through his life and his story and his teachings... Why has the treatment of women and the fight for women's rights been such an issue over the past 2,000 years? Why did it take 1920 to have the story that I just talked about a moment ago? Well, I think, I think for the most part, just practically, is that men have remained in charge. That, that, that at best, there have been wonderful men throughout history who have said, you know what, women need to be treated differently when there needs to be a change in terms of of the rights of women uh, etc but but women have but men have remained in power whether it's in the church or in Europe as it was developing uh, after the story you find in the New Testament or in the new colonies this new american colonies that men remained in power and it's not human nature for anyone anyone to give up power that's just not human nature it's not it's not what we naturally do fortunately that was part of Harry Burns' story. And, and this, this 23-year-old swing vote Republican from Tennessee, he responded to his mom the very best way he could have ever responded. He said the smartest thing he could have ever said to his mom. Yes, ma'am. That's the smartest thing. Just take that. If you haven't heard anything yet, take that one. The smartest thing... You can say as far as this honor your mother thing, some, sometimes the best thing is to say, yes, ma'am. So let me just say men. And let me just talk to the men, young men. I know there's some young men in here. And may we follow the example of Jesus in terms of how he treated women and how he saw women, how he responded to women. May we understand with great strength that women are not inferior, that women are not objects to be obtained. Women are not shapes to be fantasized over. Women are not prizes to be won and set on a shelf. That I know for most of us men and the drive that we have to, to, to succeed in life, that there's a part in our journey where we say, get the girl. And there's a, there's a, we put the crosshairs on a girl And we say, get the girl, must get girl. We'll pay whatever we have to pay. We will do whatever we have to do. We will engage in whatever way we have to engage. Get the girl. And then there's a natural part of our thick skull that says, once we get the girl, then we move on and we get the degree or we get the job or we get the promotion or whatever. And so then this kind of fades away. A woman is not a prize. A woman is a partner. A woman is not a prize to be put on a shelf. A woman is a partner who wants to be invited into the next adventure, into the next quest, into the next thing that you are doing, that we are doing together. And if I could be so bold, just, sorry, I address men. If I could be so bold as a man to just say something to women. Women, can you embrace the beauty of Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman and, and have that shape, how you see yourselves. How that have that shape, how you see yourselves, that your value does not come from what the world says is beautiful. Your value does not come from what pop culture says is interesting or attractive. Your value does not come from how you compare to other women. Your value does not come from what a man once said to you, or what a man is currently saying to you, or what a man is not saying to you. Your value comes from the one who meets you at the well and knows who you are, knows your mistakes knows your failures, knows the things that you least like about yourself. They know your five husbands, your five partners, your five secrets, whatever that might be. Your value comes from the one that that one knows you and wants to bring you living water, wants uh, wants you to experience freedom, wants you to understand just how beautiful and valuable that you are. You are intelligent, that you are uh, spiritually deep, That you are emotionally strong and you are beautiful because you are created in the image of God. May you embrace, may you get your value from that one. See, value is determined by what someone is willing to pay. And Jesus thought that you were so valuable that he paid his life for you. May you see yourself that way. Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to women. Right now, here in this in this century, in this year, women have more rights and privileges than ever in human history. And that is not in spite of Christianity. That is because of Christianity. That is because of the model that Jesus made when he was here. That's because of how God set it up from the very beginning. It is because we can celebrate that here in church because that's God's design. That's what God invites us into. Women, would you be encouraged today? Moms, we want you to be encouraged today because Jesus is the best thing that has ever happened to women. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, I pray that all of us in this room would just connect with you deeply as we celebrate moms as we celebrate women here in this place. God, I pray for all the, all the men here in this room, God, that we, would, that we would use Jesus' example and that we would change how we view women, how we look at women, how we think about women. God, that we would be radically transformed by the model of Jesus. And Father, I pray for women here in this room who perhaps question their own value, God, that you would pour beauty into that. That you would allow this story to, to jump off the page that women would see themselves standing desperately at that well, wanting living water and knowing that you will meet them there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.